0: I did not know you could run out of iNodes. And I was like, (laughs) I will tell the world that you can run out of iNodes.
1: It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Bridget. And today, I'm chatting with Julia Evans, and the show notes for this episode can be found at ArrestedDevOps.com slash discovery. But first, a word from our sponsors. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by Tenth Magnitude, a company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. Tenth Magnitude empowers businesses to better collaborate across teams and achieve IT transformation using cloud. They enable customers to innovate, automate, and accelerate by leveraging the power of Microsoft Azure. You can find out more at ArrestedDevOps.com slash magnitude.
0: This episode is also brought to you by Hired. Hired is a platform for top developer jobs, and they love DevOps people. Developers get an average of 5 to 10 offers on the platform, all with just one application. You get job offers and salary or equity up front
1: before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not want. And they work with over 4,000 companies from startups to large public companies all over the place. ADO listeners get double the $2,000 bonus just for signing up at ArrestedDevOps.com slash hired. This episode is sponsored by VictorOps, the company that makes being on-call suck less. Built by a team of avid DevOps practitioners, VictorOps is the most innovative platform available to support modern IT and DevOps incident management. They do it with an unmatched feature set that's designed to support teams through the entire incident lifecycle, from first alert to final retrospective. This means you can respond to incidents more effectively, which in turn helps you release faster, minimize downtime, and get your life back. Visit arresteddevops.com/victorops to schedule a demo or start your trial. Mention Arrested DevOps, and you'll be eligible for some great discounts too. I'm so excited to be chatting with Julia today. All right, so our topic, like the broader topic today, is discovery. And we're going to talk about specific and general discovery, because I think of everyone I know, Julia is like the most excited about learning, which is really delightful. Like she writes zines, actual paper zines, and awesome blog posts about our in- interesting tech stuff. So we'll get into that. But first, Julia, tell our listeners about yourself.
0: Um, I'm Julia. <laughs> I work as a software developer at Stripe, um, where I work on uh what do I work on? Oh, so we have all these AWS instances, and I try to work on making programs run on them. Well,
1: that uh, is that is in fact a thing that people do,
0: and making it easier to use for like our developers. Um, and then in my spare time, like you mentioned, I spend a lot of time like writing this blog where I'm like, "Hello, I learned what a container is today." <laughs> um or okay now that I learned what a container is six months ago here are one bajillion more things I have learned about containers since then um there are at least a bajillion things possibly two bajillion possibly two
1: bajillion um nice okay cool so like I guess in terms of since you haven't been on our show before. Like the main thing that I think our listeners are always excited about or interested in is like, Hey, they have a cool guest on. Um, what do, uh, what are they the most excited about right now? Like what have they been learning? And you, you mentioned containers, but what other interesting stuff have you learned lately?
0: Um, so yesterday I've been trying to understand what's up with distributed systems. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just a small topic. Yeah, like, well, like, what's the deal, right? Um, and like, you have this like trade off between consistency and availability. Um, and I've been trying to understand like how to think about that. Uh, and really, like really how to think about it, like when you have like a real system in your life that you're dealing with, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, how does this like theoretical trade off and these theorems apply to like my real system that I have in front of me?
1: Right, because you work at Stripe, and as I understand it, Stripe does money things. Like, people care a lot about your consistency and your availability.
0: That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we spend a lot of time having conversations about, like, this system, is it okay if it's not? Because, like, some systems, especially the less money systems, are okay to be a little less consistent, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Depending on what they're doing. Um, And also, we want every system to be as available as possible as one does Um, as one does um
1: yeah Yeah. nice so i feel like there's so many so many questions so many places to start i guess for our listeners who may not be super familiar with cap theorem do you want to just kind of give a quick overview of what that is um we've touched on it we've touched on it a little in the past we had kyle kingsbury on at one point but we can't assume everyone listened to that episode so
0: yeah for sure um And I think it took me a really long time to understand what was happening. Like, like I would read the definition, and I like I have a math degree, so I was like, I should understand this. (laughs) This is a theorem. Like, I know all about theorems. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then, like, translating it into real life has been really hard. Um, So the deal with the Cap Theorem is you have a system, um, or the way I think about it is you have you have a system, um, and there are a few different properties it could have. Um, One of them is that it could be strongly consistent um, which is kind of a weird thing like what does that even mean right um, and so there's this um, what is it so what, what people mean by this is something called linearizable um, and I actually like always forget the definition of that like I can't hold it in my head for more than like two hours um, you probably know what it means <laughs> uh, I don't know something that you can put in a line <laughs> yeah it's like you can put everything in a line um, may, like so when you write something um, like if you write a two, you definitely want like, yeah, I think, I think it means that you can put all of the actions that happen in the system on like a line. Yeah. Right. Um, which is actually like a very strong property. Um, because like, it could be that you're like, well, this happened after this, but like, it could be that it was like one, two, three or one, three, two. And like, no big deal. doesn't really matter. But sometimes it does really matter. And you do really care about the order. Right. Um, right. Um, so this is this property of being linearizable, um, which is something that a lot of database people want. Um, and then there's also the property of being like available, um, which means that people can actually use your database. And it turns out these people properties like that are in contention. <laughs> and you cannot actually have a database, which is always like gives you like linearizable reads and writes, um, and that is also always available. Um because there are network partitions. Um, and sometimes your network will be down and like the different computers. Oh, I mean, you you can. Yeah. And then the different computers yeah. are like, what's happening? I can't talk to anyone. I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to panic.
1: Well, and that's um, so Katie McCaffrey from uh, Twitter has talked a lot about. Um, cap theorem and she likes to say that that p um, that you mentioned partition tolerance like you don't get to choose to just not have partitions because there's like physics and math and reality that means that your distributed systems are probably not going to be able to talk every piece able to talk to every other piece at the same time
0: that's right yeah so I, i think we've done a good job of being like you can't and like, could could Hill <laughs> also had a post about this called like, you can't sacrifice for intelligence? And it's like, well, we we all live in the real world, like, <laughs> um, and in the real world, and it just it isn't just about um, network partitions, right? Which I think Kyle um, has talked about a lot. He's been like, well, you have um, a garbage collection pauses, right? Where you have like a Java application, and it decides, sorry, um, you're not getting a reply because I'm garbage collecting for the next minute, like. <laughs>
1: Oh, I remember there's, there's like an amazing one from when I used to, I used to run h base clusters and it's called the Juliet pause. And it's like, it's so romantic sounding and yet tragic. Cause it's all, it's basically the system thinks that the other part is dead. And so it just kills itself. Um, I've been thinking about that and I ran
0: into Martin Kleppman at, at Strangelib. Um, and he, he, he's like super nice. And I was like, oh, Mar- I don't really understand like what's up with the cap theorem, man like i feel confused and he's like and he was like you shouldn't pay attention to the cap theorem like it's true um but like there are more interesting things you can say and i was like what um uh what are you talking about so um so wait what are night, these more what are these more interesting things what are the more interesting things exactly um so he has this paper called the critique of the cap theorem which i read last night um, it was like in September. Um, so I, it's like about time to like actually like read the things that I said I was going to read after. Um, so so I read this paper last night. um and he 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 has like various critiques, which I'm not going to go into. Um, but the more useful thing is like he has a proposal for a different way to think about systems, um which is let's say you have a network, um and then network has some delays in it, right? Like twenty seconds or something, right? <laughs> like it takes twenty seconds for one computer to talk to another. Um different algorithms, right, for uh like distributing information need to talk to each other like different amounts of times, right? Um so if you have like a linearizable system, then the computers need to talk to each other a lot. Um and if you have a system which is just like lol, I don't care, I'll just give you whatever I have, and the computers don't need to talk to each other at all, right? <laughs> sure. Um so so he kind of like expresses, he says, like, okay, if the uh if the network is slow, um, for a linearizable system, your reads are slow and your writes are slow. Um, And then he uses like big O notation. But basically he's saying like your reads and your writes are both slow. Um, But then there's this other level of consistency called like causal consistency, which I still don't understand what it means. Um, But in that model, which is like much weaker, then your reads and writes are both fast. You can have like instant reads and instant writes, even if the network is sad.
1: Um, And then I'm there's suspicious, like-, you know, like- Hashtag Ops Life, I'm immediately suspicious of those rights. Like, are these YOLO rights? We kind of hope, but shrug. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you you obviously have, like, less good guarantees if your rights <laughs> are fast, right? Um, and then there's some intermediate model um, where your rights are slow, but your reads are fast. Um, and so, like, talking about, like, the speed of your reads and writes, like, in the case of a slow network, feels like, like, it's a more, how do you say, like, like it's it's a bit, it's a bit of a richer model than just the cap theorem, which only addresses like two scenarios, right,
1: yeah, yeah, um, it's kind of it's more nuanced,
0: yeah, it's more nuanced, um, and I feel like it, but it's also like not that complicated of a model, right like um, and you're just like, well, what happens when your network gets low, and like that's like feels easy for me to think about intuitively, yeah, um
1: so, yeah, so this it that sounds like a cool paper, so we'll have to. I believe you have a link to it that you'll be uh, I do We'll be putting in the show. We'll be putting that in the show notes. Um, okay. So this is a paper that you read because of some conversation you had at Strange Loop. I feel like that seems like a long way to go for some people who, you know, maybe feel like papers aren't for them or didn't go to Strange Loop. Like how, how do you find stuff that you want to learn and how do you recommend people find interesting stuff?
0: So I basically don't read papers. Um, mm-hmm. Like uh,
1: papers we I, love crowd will be so sad uh I, I
0: love the papers we love card i go to papers we love in montreal um, but i never read the paper um i i, I just go and i listen to what, what the person has to say and then i always learn something um and then i ask really dumb questions which would have mostly been resolved by reading the paper
1: um, so i don't feel like you're expected to read the paper before the presentation at least i hope you're not
0: yeah i hope not because i never have um <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't like, read it after the paper. I don't I, 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 really I don't read, read it, it after, after it the paper. Like I read but... a huge number of papers because I probably read like four this year. Um, and I mostly read papers when someone prints out a paper and hands me a physical copy of it. Um, wow. And it's like, Julia, this paper is for you. And then I'll like maybe sometimes go
1: home and read it. Um, <laughs> that sounds like the kind of thing that you would read in that exciting 10,000 feet after takeoff, but before you get to the uh, the level of the airplane where you can use the Wi-Fi.
0: I feel like the the
1: paper would be good for that. So when you're finding which stuff you want to learn about, like what Um, motivates you to say, this is something I want to dig into.
0: I have a lot of feelings that I don't understand things like, so for like distributed systems is one of those things where like, I I think it often starts as like, just like a feeling of discomfort around a topic where I'm like, I don't really, I don't really get like what's happening here. Um, Like with this Mm -hmm. like cap theorem. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think often that kind of discomfort is like not resolved by it. like, like someone will be like, Oh, you should read the definition. And I'm like, well, I, like I read the definition, but that did not like resolve all of my discomfort.
1: Sometimes it makes it worse.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like so, so, sometimes it makes it worse. Right. Um, or uh, You're like, I know all
1: of those words. Separately. Yeah. I'll
0: be like, I, I got all the words, but I still don't really understand what's happening. Um, so, so I spend a lot of time like kind of being uncomfortable with how well I understand something. And then trying to like, understand why i feel uncomfortable um and i'm like well like why is this confusing and then like with the cap theorem it could be because like actually i have systems which are like not well described by this theorem right mm-hmm. um because like it's only about linearizability and if i have systems that like aren't trying to be linearizable then it's like not really the best model right so then the problem might not be that i don't understand the cap theorem but that the cap theorem is not the answer to my questions and then and that's
1: that's a subtle but important point, because I think a lot of times in tech, people are looking for answers. And especially when you're trying to solve specific problems in the workplace, it's very tempting to jump for something that looks like an answer. It might not be the, the answer or a complete answer or any sort of answer at all to your problem.
0: <laughs> but things that and sound like, like, like an well, answer is an are answer very compelling.
1: <laughs> uh, so that kind of, that brings us actually, that segues nicely into, you just wrote a really interesting blog post about service discovery at Stripe. And I kind of want to dig into that a little bit, and we're going to have a link to it in the show notes. Um, But this, this covers a lot of these areas because it's not, I, I think probably a lot of people don't sit around at home going service discovery. I wish I knew more about that. Like you had a reason and you, a lot of people also don't make technical decisions, you know, like charity majors likes to talk about good technical decision-making. And a lot of it doesn't come down to like, I heard about tool, tool foo. It's awesome. We should use that in production now. So like, can you talk a little bit about, um, just, I mean, you don't have to go step by step through the blog post, but you can talk a little bit about how service discovery at Stripe got started. Why, wherefore, what?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so the reason I wrote this blog post, well, there, there are a few reasons. Um, one reason was that, uh, I'm on, I'm on the team that owns service discovery at Stripe. Um, I did not set up the system. Um, and so like at the beginning, like when I joined this team, I didn't know like very much about how it worked. I was like, we have this service discovery system. It's like real important. I should (laughs) know how this works. Right. Um, and I was, I was like, and then at some point i gave a talk about it cuz someone explained it to me how it worked cuz i needed to work with it um and then i and then i gave like an internal talk about it and i was like this is really interesting maybe i should write an external blog post about it which will like tell other people about this like interesting
1: thing that we have
0: um and also like solidify my own understanding
1: <laughs> teaching others is a great way to learn stuff better yourself that's for sure yeah um, so, um, again, for oh, our yeah. listeners who maybe don't use Service Discovery or at least don't know that they use Service Discovery, can you give what us your 10,000-foot overview? Well, yeah, what definitely. is it? And in aside from, like, an academic definition, why do you want it?
0: Right. Um, so we have um, AWS instances. Um, and there are two things that AWS instances can do. Um, they could go down and they can come up. <laughs> right, you can get new ones and you can lose ones. Um, mm-hmm. So losing instances is a uh, kind of a problem. Um, you don't need service discovery to solve the problem of losing instances. Um, so we run like all of our API servers live behind um, load balancers, mm-hmm. um, and those load balancers will just be like, "Hey, that service is down. I'm not going to send any more requests to that machine." Right. Um, right. So like, even if you lose machines, like as long as you have something like a load balance and like, if you're doing like web. Um, right. If you need
1: to route traffic. Cause, yeah, like, if you need to route
0: traffic, then
1: there you are can worker, have a check
0: and you can Right. Because the there are
1: like fit. worker type things that could run some sort of agent or run a worker and just go harvest things off a queue and process them and not need load balancing. So, right. Like there's, there's the ability of some services to not need to get registered somewhere but like right. why would we want services to get or you know nodes that are providing a service to get registered somewhere like right. what kind of use cases does that help with
0: right um so if you're adding new nodes um then you need to you need to be able to register them somehow right mm-hmm. um and so before we had the system um we basically ran a manual like we would use like puppet and we would <laughs> like puppet some machine and it would register the nodes and that would kind of work. Um, but it was like pretty slow, um, and very like toilsome, right? Like there was like a person, like you would have to like, as a human go, um, go run puppet. And for people who are like, for
1: people who are using configuration management as part of their service discovery, the point of that would be as part of your initial, like first run, go register yourself somewhere
0: uh so it, well it could be that um what i think what what we actually did was um we would like puppet it a lo- like write like m- like create a configuration file like on the load balancer saying okay here's the list of nodes oh, um, okay. okay yeah so
1: this wasn't this wasn't amazon's elb this was like something you were doing with ha proxy or yeah, something? This is something we were doing with ha proxy as well um, does
0: yeah yeah um but yeah you could also use an elb and have your, um, and like, that's a totally reasonable thing to do. Like, it's not, uh, it's not obvious that that's worse than what we do. Right. Like,
1: well, I mean, yes and no. Right. So this, this kind of takes us to the, does it make more sense to, um, tell the nodes through, you know, auto scaling groups or, you know, launch configs or whatever that they're behind this ELB and that solves everything, or does it make sense in some cases, for the nodes to be um, making themselves available. Like, there's arguments to be made, I would say, especially in the monitoring space, for there being real value in the nodes uh, checking in when they're healthy. Like, Can you address that a little bit? Like, the difference between polling and, like, checking in. I know that's, like, way off topic of what we were going to talk about. (laughs) Um, I'm probably not phrasing this well, but, like, imagine... It's possible. Like I've seen people, I think Etsy does a bunch of stuff with Chef where they register um, hosts with Nagios, like Mm -hmm. after it's done a Chef run. And then I guess if the host is gone, like, you know, Chef cleans it up or whatever. There's a bunch of plugins you can use to do that. Um, But that's a little bit different than a host, like registering itself with the console saying it's available and then removing itself. Cause like yeah. if you're registering yourself just with configuration management, like what kind of constant updates and health checks are there?
0: Right. Yeah. So I think of registering yourself as being like very different from health checks. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, like we, like our load balancer does health checks mm-hmm. and like console will also do health checks, but I don't think of those as being very important or as important. Okay. Um, because like if the node, uh, Especially, I mean, as 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 we have not explained, but the blog post says, <laughs> um, like, we don't actually get updates from console very often. We only get them like every minute. Um, so like, in the time when like a node said, "Hey, I'm up," uh, to like when you're actually uh sending it a request, it could be like thirty seconds later, and it could have gone down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of health checking uh, separately from console.
1: That makes sense. Just um, on like on a routing layer. Yeah. Exactly. Right, yeah, cool. like in the load balancer. Um, okay, so I feel like we jumped, We I jumped us way ahead. So let's just go back to how did you decide that you had a problem that you thought console would solve? And like, what was that problem?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, so the problem was that uh, registering new host was too much work. And we wanted right. it to happen like continuously and automatically.
1: And not have um, manual intervention.
0: Uh, yeah, not have manual intervention.
1: Okay. Uh, so like, how does console help with that?
0: Right. Um, so console advertises itself as a service discovery system, um, and it lets you have an agent on every host. Um, so you're like, "So you have this console agent running, and then it reports, "Hey, I'm a server. Hello, <laughs> I'm running this thing on port 80 um, to the console server, and then there's like a central console there's actually several console, console servers. Um, and then they have a database of like everything that's running right now. Um, and then you can query that database to get information about where all your like API servers are, for example.
1: I haven't run console in production myself. I've played with it a bit, and it kind of seems like there are a number of console servers, and then there's this whole gossip protocol, and like, what, if any, of that actually affects how you use it in real life?
0: Right. Um, so one
1: interesting thing about console um,
0: is that it's a... Um, like strongly consistent system, like we talked about before, um, mm-hmm. which means that so there there are several servers. Um, they all kind of maintain consensus, uh, and this means that you have this guarantee that like no matter where you query, you'll you'll always kind of get like a totally correct response about which servers are up. Um, it turns out that this is not a very important property uh, to have, really. Uh, or it wasn't an important property for us. Um, because um, I would like to sort of know which servers are up. But if I'm, like, missing a couple or if there are a couple of extra servers, it's not that big of a deal Um, because uh, our load balancers, like, if you're telling the load balancer, like, hey, here are the servers, um, then the load balancer is in charge of checking, of, like, double checking that anyway. Um,
1: Right. So the load balancer is going to do some sort of health check maybe have some kind of connection stickiness or other independent from console ways that it's deciding that this is an okay place to send traffic.
0: Yeah. Um, So it turns out that for service discovery, a lot of the time you don't really care if your results are exactly right. Um, You just want to be like mostly kind of right.
1: And this is of course for, we're not talking about like a, data store where maybe you have not quite enough replication. I mean, there certainly are scenarios where you would care a lot about that one. And, oh, why did we not make sure we have better replication there? But this sounds like a lot of API endpoints or whatever, where it doesn't yeah, really matter yeah. which one you hear from like, as long as like, you hear from something. It's, it's endpoints.
0: And if you're like, oh, there's like, I have like these like 96 instead of those like 97. Then you're like, well, it's kind of the same thing. Um, as long as you know that you're not too
1: wrong. Right. Okay, so it sounds like there were a couple of ways that you could have implemented that. Uh, can, you, can you go into some detail, a little bit of an overview of like, the stuff you talked about in the blog post about how yeah. this solution is working out for you? Like, What parts of it do you like? Which parts of it are still an unsolved problem?
0: Um, so we started out by querying console, like, when, by, by being like, hey, console, which servers are up? And it would be like, these ones. And we'd be like, great. Um, it turns out that uh, this didn't work that well. Um, because the console was, like, too consistent. Um, so sometimes it would be like, I'm having a leader election. This is a disaster. You cannot get servers. And we were like, <laughs> we would like servers. I, I don't Some... care. Like, hey. <laughs> it just any servers. Not. They don't have to be the right servers. And it was like, I'm having a leader election. <laughs> and, like, like, we had fallbacks, and it wasn't, like, a disaster. Um, but it wasn't really a good state to be in. Um, that like our service discovery system became occasionally unavailable, right? (laughs) Um, So we decided that we wanted to have a system that was available all the time, um, but that was not as consistent um, because we didn't care about that, it turned out.
1: So what kind of changes did you have to make to make that possible?
0: So um, what we did um, is we uh, put files. uh, What do we do? Um, So there's a console comes with this this thing called console template, um, which will like query console and create a configuration file. Um, so we use HA proxies to do load balancing. Um, so we generate an HA proxy configuration file every like minute. Um, being like, okay, this is these are the servers that are up right now. Um, and then that configuration file won't go away if console goes away. Um, and the worst thing that can happen is we have kind of an old set of servers. Um, which isn't that big of a deal.
1: So, and does that? Uh, I can't recall off the top of my head if HA proxy does like a live reload or like how does that work.
0: Yeah, so it does a graceful reload. Uh, where basically it'll fork, um, and then the old process will handle all the old connections, and then the new one will pick up new connections.
1: Oh, okay, cool. So then you don't, hopefully, you don't end up with connections being interrupted every time this is happening. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably your you know nginx or whatever connections wouldn't be affected, but
0: yeah, no, but yeah, it it does it does. Um, I think that there are some like a small amount of edge cases. There's a blog post from. Yelp, which talks about um, how like it can cause some small problems, um, but Mm -hmm. they deal with a lot more uh, traffic than we do. Like at the kind of payment scale, um, Mm -hmm. it's not uh, it's not a problem for us.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like if if you had payment traffic that was coming in at the same uh, load that presumably Yelp has stuff coming in, you might be asking yourself other questions. what's going on? This is exciting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like what do I do with this like float of money?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, and you wrote this blog post for Stripe, but you also do a lot of blogging yourself. Um, and we'll put the URL in the show notes, but if you want to just tell our listeners,
0: I started blogging. I was at this, uh, retreat for programmers called the recurse center, um, Mm -hmm. three years ago now. Um, and, I decided to write a blog post every day about what I was learning. I think I joked uh, to my partner that it was my media strategy uh, to get a job afterwards. Did it work? <laughs> it did work. Um, <laughs> it, it was very effective. I also just thought it was cool that I was learning all these things and I wanted to write about it. Um, and I, I took this approach then, uh, which I still try to take now where I was just like, I need to write something every day. I'm just going to say what I learned today. If people think it's interesting, they'll read it. If they don't think it's interesting, they won't read it. I don't care. Like it's not going to be perfect.
1: And then the not going to be perfect thing, I think is a really good attitude. Like one thing I really appreciate that whole spirit of discovery in your blog posts is that you're okay with people realizing that, oh my God, you don't know absolutely everything about every topic on the entire planet. I feel like a lot of people walk around wanting to show what an expert they are in whatever area, but not really talk about the things that they don't know. And like, it's hard sometimes, I think, for people to admit they don't know something, but admitting you don't know something is a really important step in learning it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's also important, like at work, like like I have the search discovery cluster, uh, which is my job to work on. Like, I, like, it's my job to make the system work. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but when I joined my team, I didn't know how it worked. Um, and so I was, I had to be like, well, I don't know how this works. Um, and now I do know how it works and I can like work on it responsibly. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah. make something that will work really well for our customers.
1: And that's, I think that's another, like teasing out how you, both taught yourself and interacted with your team to learn um, is particularly interesting because you mentioned Montreal and I don't know if people know uh, where Stripe, a lot of Stripe employees actually sit, but maybe go into a little bit, a little bit of detail about your uh, remote situation.
0: Yeah. Um, I live in Montreal. Uh, Stripe is in San Francisco. Uh, mm-hmm. m- most of my team right now is remote. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, like, for the entire time that I've worked at Stripe, I've worked on teams which were mostly remote. Um, and how
1: long have you been there now? Uh, almost three years. Time flies. <laughs> time flies. <laughs> I feel like one of the reasons that people say that remote is hard or they have trouble with it or they have a hard time supporting it on their team is this idea of onboarding new people, teaching them things, helping people with questions. Like, how do you and Stripe approach that in terms of, like, you know, giving you ways to discover things on your own and, um, holding your hand through discovering things.
0: Um, so I'm like pretty aggressive with asking people questions. I remember like I was on, when, when I started, I would join this data infrastructure team where I needed to work with like Hadoop and like, I would never used to do it before. I had no idea. I was like, what is Hadoop? Like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, and
1: you and I'm, everyone else who ever touches Hadoop for the first time. <laughs>
0: Right. Um, So many
1: Java stack traces, so much sadness. (laughs) So much sadness.
0: Um, So I remember on the plane back from San Francisco, I was, like, interrogating people. I was like, what is H-Base? What is scalding? What is yarn? Like, what? (laughs) Like, I just, like, went down, like, every noun that I didn't understand, which was all of them. Um, (laughs) um, And got them to explain everything to me. Um, And I've definitely like dealt with this by like being like extremely proactive um when I joined my new team my manager at the time was like so often I warn people that they need to be like kind of proactive with like asking questions and like like no one's going to tell you how everything works so you need to like go ask for yourself and he was like but I'm not worried about you you're gonna be okay
1: <laughs> that's so awesome <laughs>
0: um
1: but so and you said your team is mostly remote so like what kind of techniques or processes or tools do you use to ask and answer questions for each other? Mm, I talk on Slack a
0: lot. Um, Mm -hmm. I sometimes schedule, like if I want to know something more in depth, I'll schedule like a Google hangout. Um, I also sometimes use the technique of going to San Francisco, um, (laughs) (laughs) spending some time with people there. Um, We all all do that. um, My uh, colleague Nelson, um, who is the best, Was like did a lot of the initial work setting up the cluster. Um, So I at some point made like a list of like a whole bunch of questions I had for him, and I was like, "Here are all of my questions," Um, and then like we went through everything.
1: I I feel like having the willingness to ask those questions also helps the person who set it up. And realistically, you've set uh, you've set clusters and things up yourself too, where you don't really remember absolutely once you get to the end of it and it works. Going back and remembering every false start and every piece that you did get working the way you wanted is sometimes forensic archaeology. Like Mm -hmm. getting somebody coming in with an informed set of questions so that you can kind of describe the current working state of the system, I think is really nice.
0: Yeah, Um, and I think it's really like you could be a really good partner in like the handing off of a system um, because it really sucks if you set something up and then you're in charge of it forever, Um, (laughs) like. (laughs)
1: Yeah, the, oh. the, side, the side effect that goes along with being territorial is good luck ever having new projects or getting promoted.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've seen like, a few people do like really amazing jobs of like coming into a system and being like, someone else set up the system, I don't know how it works. And then going from there to being like, I am the primary maintainer of the system. I know everything about how it works. Um, and like, really becoming the expert. Um, and I think like having examples of that is really important.
1: Yeah, I really like that. And I think uh, both writing externally facing blog posts and personal blog posts about tech um, are pretty good ways for you to both demonstrate your knowledge. It certainly doesn't help for any future, you know, employment conversations, but it also helps inform people around you, whether it's the wider internet or your coworkers or whatever. Um, and y- you don't just write the blog posts either. Like talk a little bit about the zines and these comics, because this is like kind of unusual and really exciting. Yeah. Um, so a zine
0: is like, uh, it's short for fanzine and it's basically like a little tiny magazine about like something that you love. Um, so in 2014, I was giving a talk at PyCon about, uh, debugging tools for Linux basically. Um, and I was, um, I think I'd watched this like Anyway, I'd watch this movie about, like, Riot Girl and, like, the 90s and the scenes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I was kind of excited about, like, independent publication. Um, and so I was like, I know what I'll do. Because um, I would always give these talks and then people would be like, what do I read after your talk? And I would try to give them links. and then But I could tell that, that kind of they weren't reading the links. Um, and I was like, well, how do I get people to, like, read the stuff after my talk? Um, so what I decided to do was to, like, publish, like, a physical thing that I would hand out to everyone in my talk like a handout um and then i was like well i'll just make it like a fanzine that's like something like about what i love um so i wrote the zine about s um which is this tool that i really love
1: they, they had copies at devops days in new york it was adorable
0: <laughs> that made me really happy and stickers um, <laughs> and stickers it's like Estrace. yeah Yeah, um, and I felt like that worked really well um, because, like, if you put something into people's hands and you're like, this is the stuff that I want you to know, then they can go read it, like, on the bus or whatever, right? You can kind of compete better for their attention. (laughs) Um, And also, it was really fun to make. Um, So I made another uh, zine recently in September about, like, a bunch of uh, Linux debugging tools that I love, Um, and I think that one went really well.
1: That's awesome. And then, like, talk a little bit about um this idea of comics like putting stuff in whether it's in a i guess slides for a conference talk or in a blog post like what kind of difference or value is there with making something more of a comic art sort of endeavor instead of like another paragraph or bullet points or whatever of text
0: i think there are a few reasons this works well um i wrote this blog post about service discovery I thought I, th- I thought it was like a pretty good blog post and that it was explained pretty well. Um, and then someone was like, "Julia, you should like put like a cute drawing at the top." And I was like, "Should I?" Um, and then I I was getting on like a, a six plane ride. Um, so like, what better time to draw something, right? Um, and then when when I got I got off the plane, I sent it back to the person. I was like, "Well, here's what I made," and he was like. This is amazing. Like I can understand everything in your post so much easier, more easily from just look looking at this drawing, right? Um, so and of course, like the drawing doesn't explain everything about how service discovery works at Stripe. Um, but they can be like a really good summarization tool um where you're just like these are the main concepts. Um I also did this recently. Um so when you set up a new like web service at Stripe, um we have this like long document explaining how to do it. Um, which is like eight steps. Um, and I just wrote some new d- documentation. And when I sent out an email to all the developers about the new d- documentation that I wrote, um, I also do a comic, um, being like, these are the eight steps.
1: That's so awesome.
0: In, like, form, <laughs> um, just to like help people see like this is the big picture, right? Um, and it's like kind of cute, but I think it's more important that like it, it is a good summary of what all the steps are. Um, and you can kind of like see it at a glance and like understand the main ideas. The other reason that I do it um, is I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, and, like, uh, it, it can be kind of hard to communicate stuff on Twitter. Um, and I think a lot of people have noticed that if you post images on Twitter, um, you can put, communicate a lot more. Um, so I've been making these, like, small comics that I post on Twitter um, where I'm like, oh, here's, like, slash proc, right? Um,
1: I and love then the we'll slash proc like... one. It's so cute.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love it. I was, I was actually really surprised by it. Uh, cause I think I wrote it. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. And I was like, I'll just write about slash Brock. I'm really tired. And then I woke up and I was like, Oh, people really <laughs> didn't know about slash rock, did they? <laughs> okay, cool.
1: <laughs> well, I think this is, this is kind of, you know, it's related to the the systems we love day that they're going to be having in San Francisco soon. Like this idea that there's a lot of, things whether it's inodes I know you were recently talking about or slash proc or whatever that we interact with these things every day but how much have we actually paid attention to them and like they're pretty significant like tell us about inodes since I know you just uh, did a really cool post I about inodes.
0: inodes I yeah. heard about inodes because I was like what actually is an inode like <laughs> um and so I decided to write it down uh, it turns out that Every file has an inode. Um, and the inode, um, the inodes live in like a huge array on my hard drive. Um, and they're numbered like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And they're just in like this flat array. Um, and then inode like two seven three nine one represents some kind of file. And it's like, here's where that file lives on disk. Like here's where like the data blocks are, and like here's who owns the file. And, and- I was like, Oh, that's not that complicated.
1: It's it's not that complicated, but it's also a place that you can run into bizarre failure conditions. That's like right. it's possible to run out of inodes, for example.
0: It is possible to run out of inodes. That's actually why I drew the comic, is because once I drew, ran out of inodes, and I was like, I did not know you could run out of inodes, and I was like, I will tell the world that you can run out of inodes.
1: I remember that a long time ago there was a there was a joke Usenet news group called. Alt, why do Unix systems have so few inodes? I don't think anyone ever actually posted in it. It was more somebody made that news group because they had one of those days where the answer was, oh, I ran out of inodes. you got to be kidding me. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's such an upsetting thing. Um, totally. but I, like, I feel like there are just like so many of these things that you learn over the course of like your like, career, um, where like, like everyone has a day, um, or not everyone, but like <laughs> many people have a day, uh, which is the day that they learn that you can run out of notes. Um, <laughs> and
1: then they're like, con.
0: <laughs> and like, maybe it's better for that day to be like, when you read an adorable comic on Twitter.
1: Um, <laughs> As opposed to spend a bunch of time troubleshooting.
0: Yeah. Um. And then you can be like, oh, this is like in that comic. Maybe
1: uh, I can deal with the
0: situation like more quickly
1: now. Nice. I like that. So you mentioned uh, containers earlier, and I know that you wrote a couple of blog posts about that. Um, does that mean that you are using containers at Stripe, or is this more you're interested in learning about them? Like, I know people um, get excited about contra- containers and the orchestrating thereof, so I'd love to hear more about your ideas there.
0: Yeah. Um, so the reason I'm interested in containers, um, is that I'm interested in making our infrastructure easier to use, um, for like stripe developers. Um, and I think the way to do that is going to have to be to use containers. Um, I'm not like fundamentally weirdly that interested in containers. Like I think when people talk about Kubernetes, my like normal reaction is to be like, Oh no. Like, you're <laughs> we talking about containers again. Like, like there's so much, like, hype around it. And I often find it really frustrating um, because there's, like, a lot to, like, uh, like slog through. Um, right.
1: Well, and the hype is, I mean, it's all kind of nonsense. Like, where's the practical applications of where you see this stuff can make your work easier, your coworkers' work easier?
0: Um, so the thing I'm, I think most excited about right now is, uh, we have a lot of different instances that are configured in a lot of different ways and like maintaining all of the different configuration for all the different kinds of instances is a lot of work. Um, it's like very stressful or it's, it's a lot of work for like Stripe, like developers. Um, like someone was setting up a new service this week and they were like going through all the steps and I was like, I'm sorry, like, (laughs) this is a lot of work. Right. Um, to set up a new type of instance um, and so like the promise of kubernetes um is that you can just like have like kind of a uniform infrastructure right where you can figure every box the same way um and then you just like run things on those boxes um and I think that promise is really compelling um it makes it a lot easier to run a lot of machines um. And like kind of isolating like like putting everything inside a container and having that boundary where you're like all of your special snowflake magical configuration lives inside your container, um, mm-hmm. I think is a really compelling like user experience promise,
1: yeah, I mean, and there's there's a lot to be said about where exactly the boundaries are and what you do with everything in terms of inputs um, to and outputs from the containers, um, like your individual, you know, C group and namespace processes, like still have logs. Mm
0: -hmm. The
1: logs go somewhere. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there, Yeah. but I'm, I'm actually, I'm excited now because I know that as you implement stuff like that at Stripe, you're going to write amazing blog posts. (laughs) Yeah. I
0: think (laughs) one thing that's kind of difficult about containers is that they've been like very successful on like the desktop like, like as like a developer tool where you're like, okay, I want to like develop, I want to set up my developer environment and I'm going to use a container to do that. Um, and that's been like, I think like incredibly successful. Um, but I think sometimes people like conflate like that success with like, uh, containers in production, uh, where I think the story is like a lot less clear. Um, and it's a lot less obvious what to do.
1: Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I've run containers in production and like, it's, there are some things that are really great and there are other things where you chase a lot of bugs and I mean, like any other software written by humans, they're going to be trade-offs. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like yeah. in the case of where we where we were doing it, like the trade-offs made sense for us. But I think that starting from, we would like some containers or we would like to orchestrate some containers or we would like to drive our utilization to 99%. And then, like, trying to retrofit everything around that kind of stated goal is, like, well, what business problem are you solving? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, I
0: mean, utilization makes sense as a business. Like, I think a lot of people have used containers uh, historically because they've been, like, well, I have all these computers. And if I don't, like, if my utilization is too low, I won't be able to make money, right? Like, I won't be able to, like, have a viable business.
1: But like ninety nine percent is a pretty unrealistic utilization. Oh number. yeah, ninety nine
0: percent is too high. I mean, but it's like you it could be like I'm at twenty percent and I want to be at like eighty percent, and I think containers will help get me there.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and you also mentioned like the um, the overhead for developers working with a new system. Uh, you could imagine uh, um, having a little bit less in the way of context switching overhead if developers are moving from working on one subsystem to another, but there's a lot of the underlying infrastructure for them that's the same. So they don't have to spend so much time with fiddly bits. I think the the reason I wanted to just kind of chat with you about discovery is I feel like you have this, you have this enthusiasm for learning this stuff that it can't just be boiled down to. And I have to learn it to do my job and be effective and create, you know, stakeholder value. Like, can you can you give people ideas or tips as to maybe if they wish they were excited about learning stuff and they haven't really figured out how to be excited about it lately? What what would you recommend for people who want to be excited about learning or excited about learning again?
0: I think the way I got more excited about learning things is I went to the Recurse Center.
1: Nice. So in a supportive environment of other people who encourage you to focus on learning.
0: Yeah. Um, and they're like, I mean, I had like 12 weeks to like learn whatever I wanted. And then I was like, oh man, there are all these things to learn that I didn't even realize that I could learn. Right. Um, which was really exciting. Um, and then I think that kind of like affected me permanently and now I'm stuck learning things all the time.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think that's great, but you're also, you chose an employer that's a place that lets you stretch and learn stuff. Mm, I guess that's true. I didn't think about that. Or <laughs> I if you I imagine it, it, oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, like I, I feel like I can't. I find it hard to imagine it being otherwise.
1: I mean, there, there are places where incentives are structured such that you just have to ship, ship, ship according to processes and procedures somebody came up with, and there's no time to explore this thing that you're interested in over there because we just have to get this thing out the door. Like there are places yeah. with those sort of pressures.
0: Yeah. Like, I feel like just in order to, like, do my job, I need to learn so much. Um, Yeah. Because it'll be like, Julia, can you, like, make everything about how we, like, run services easier? And I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) Like, there are, like, many, several things I do not know.
1: Nice. Well, and and that is a really important factor too. Like we talked about that a little bit earlier, but being willing to be vulnerable, be willing to being willing to ask other people questions. Like if somebody feels discomfort with that, what would you recommend? So I think my
0: coworkers are like extremely supportive about it. Like, I don't think anyone has ever been like, Julia, that's kind of a dumb question. Like, (laughs) um, and like, I think if you're in an environment where people are not like receptive to being asked questions like it's very hard to do uh one thing I think I realized is that like it's actually very hard to ask good questions um and I think I've gotten a lot better at it uh so like I think one of my favorite comment compliments I ever got is one of my coworkers was like Julia you always ask such good questions I always really want to like take them seriously and give you a really good answer and I was like
1: oh, oh. that's wonderful
0: um, I really like that, but like I mean, it really is like like asking questions really is like a skill, um, and like asking the right questions really is a skill, right? Um, like sometimes I'll just be like, "What?" Like I don't understand. And, like I don't understand is like not a very good question, right? Um,
1: or like, "How does so this how, work?" is like not always that good of a question. How would you How would you suggest formulating a good question if um, somebody wants to discover how something at their job works?
0: So one thing that I do a lot is I try to understand how it works a little bit on my own. And then I'll like describe to someone how I think it works. I'll be like, okay, so I understood like this, this, and this, and then normally I'll be wrong about some aspect (laughs) of it. Right. Or they'll be like, you left out this extremely important thing. And I'm like, Oh, that's cause I didn't know it. (laughs) Right. Like, um, or they'll be like, uh, you're almost totally right. Except for this one part, um, which was wrong. And so I think like, like asking someone to like check your understanding um, can be helpful. And like t- to be able to do that, you obviously need to like
1: know, like some amount already. Or start but, by reading some amount. Yeah. Or start yeah, by reading read, something. Read, read the Wikipedia entry, read the man page. If things in it don't make sense, keep looking. And then maybe try to outline what you think does make sense. And then talk to somebody who probably understands it better than you do.
0: I wrote a blog post about this called asking questions is hard, <laughs> nice. um, but worth it.
1: I've I I read a bunch of your blog posts, but I think I might have missed that one. So, hey, excellent. After this, I have something new to go read. I
0: number of blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I think the other thing that's helped me is, like, I've developed this, like, hopefully unshakable confidence that, like, I can kind of figure anything out. Um, so it's, like, if I don't understand something, it's either because... Uh I haven't learned it yet. Like it's it, like either like there are things that I don't understand which I'm not gonna learn because I don't think that they're like important enough for me to learn. Um, and there are things that I don't understand yet just because like I haven't gotten around to it yet. Um and I just need to like spend the time, right? And I find it a lot easier to think of like, oh, I don't understand this because I haven't like taken the time to go learn it, um, rather than like I don't understand this because this is like too hard.
1: That's a and that's a really good place, I think, to wrap up, to just say like There's not um, one way to learn things. And there's not like this, you know, manual that I got with my computer science degree. And if somebody got a math degree, well, clearly they know tons about math, but how will they ever learn distributed systems? Like, that's clearly nonsense. There's a lot of different ways to learn this stuff. And it seems like what you're saying is being open to iterating on your understanding is really key. Definitely.
0: And then if you learn one thing at a time, then eventually you come out and you're like, like, I'm like, Julia, you're like, know all this stuff about like operating systems. and Like you're so good at it. And I'm like, that's because I learned things like one thing at a time. And now it turns out that I know all this stuff.
1: Yeah. That's, and that's really important too, for people who are, especially people who are trying to maybe redirect their career or take on an exciting new project at work. And then they think like, it's just statically other people are the expert in that I'm currently not like if they leave it there, it's like, well, somebody isn't going to necessarily come along and anoint you the expert, but you can probably make yourself the expert or an expert. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's um, so great.
0: Yeah. But it takes <laughs> like, like, you, I think you often have to be like very proactive um, about like making like, yeah, no one has ever anointed me the expert of anything. <laughs>
1: Well, and I also think that we can be pretty comfortable knowing we can solve some quantity of production problems about a system and still not understand it deeply down to like the the byte level code. I mean, it's like there's going to be some amount of understanding that we have and some amount of understanding that we just punt on. Like, that's probably fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, I think it, the people who ask like the Toyota whys or people who try to do root cause analysis is like, okay, root cause is wherever you land when you stop asking why, mm-hmm. but there's always going to be more stuff down there somewhere.
0: <laughs> I think like you can always kind of keep going deeper. Like I think, I think kind of like the lowest I think I'm comfortable like looking is like in the Linux kernel code. Like, I think I think I now think it's, like, not that unreasonable if you're, like, if you really have a question to be like, okay, what does the Linux kernel have to say about <laughs> how that works, right? Like, and, like, that's also something I do very often, um, but it turns out it's, like, totally not, like, not impossible at all. Um,
1: well, and I think that there's probably a lot of people who will think, huh, okay, so when I have questions about something that's a complete mystery to me, but I suspect it might be somewhere down there in the Linux kernel code... I'm going to ask Julia. (laughs) So if, if uh, people are looking for you online, wanted to chat with you on Twitter, read this blog, we'll put links in the show notes, but where can people find you on the internets? On Twitter.
0: I'm Bork with a zero. Um, I also have a blog, which is at jvns.ca, which is not, the kind of thing you can say out loud.
1: <laughs> I mean, you can say it. People might be able to write it down while they're on like the treadmill or whatever, but they'll be putting it into their phone, looking right now while they're listening. Um, okay, cool. So I think we had a we had a couple of things that we wanted people to read or check out, other than your blog, which will definitely be linked here. Uh, so you wanna you told us a little bit about this before. Do you wanna kind of tell us why should people read this critique of the Cap Theorem? So I think
0: it's interesting because basically like I I like this critique of the cap theorem because like the idea that the cap theorem is like not the right tool was like very surprising to me. Um and I like things that are surprising. Like I was like what do you mean? The cap theorem is the thing <laughs> and he was like the cap theorem is not the thing. Um there are other things that might be more useful to you as like someone who is trying to like use like make practical systems. And I was like, what? (laughs) So
1: what's Um, what's an example of a practical, you were mentioning one earlier, but I want to kind of just wrap up with what's, what's the practical system that led you to thinking about this stuff?
0: uh, So originally I was thinking about a replicated database um, where you might like write to a primary, which might be slow, but then you might read from a secondary Okay, and it would be fast. Um, Like a system like that. Um, which I think cap does not really help you reason about in any way. Um, it's just like, well, that's not like linearizable (laughs) or something. And then it's like, you should feel bad or like I don't know. Right. Like (laughs) you're bad and your database is bad and you should feel bad. But of course that's like a very like popular database model. Um, and there's like, it's appropriate for a lot of people, but like the cap theorem just, I think does not help you with it at all. Is my understanding. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, awesome. Within this model, maybe speaks to it a little bit more. Um,
1: cool. We'll have, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, um, which will be of course at arrested slash discovery. Cause that's everything we're talking about here. Uh, let's see. I have a couple of checkouts too, because I don't live in Montreal and I live in the United States and we have all sorts of people wondering how they can help make the world a better place right now. And so there's a, a website uh, to match volunteers uh, with skills um, to orgs that can use those skills called catchafire.org. And I haven't used it myself, but I, I've definitely been looking at it. And some of it's kind of prosaic and some of it's like, we are helping people and need uh, one of these database things we've heard about. And it's like, there's a lot of places where you know uh, techies could help there. And also like, I volunteer teaching English to adult immigrants and refugees at the Minnesota Literacy Council. Ours is at mnliteracy.org. Your local area probably has something like that, too. And you might think, well, I have no teaching ability, but generally they run you through a training program that helps. So if you know absolutely anything about how to speak English or possibly do, you know, grade school math or like if you have an interest in civics. I've heard a lot of people are suddenly interested in civics. Anything like that. Um, populations in your local area probably could use your help there. Um, okay, so let's see. Upcoming community and event stuff. Uh, you were mentioning Strangely earlier. Do you do you have any uh, conference plans pending that you can tell folks about? No. <laughs> you have some exciting at-home time coming up?
0: Uh, unclear. clear. <laughs> Magic 8-Ball
1: says, ask again later.
0: Yeah, I haven't yet scheduled my 2017 self to do anything. That
1: sounds delightful. I have not committed to a ton of 2017 stuff. I do have some. Um, But the, uh, the one thing pending on my horizon that is definitely happening real soon now is I am going to... Uh, speak at DevOps Days Sydney, so I am getting on a plane to Australia the day after Thanksgiving. So that should be pretty fun. I'm looking forward to that. I've never been to Australia. Okay. Um, and there's, <laughs> it should be pretty cool. I guess a bunch of people we know are going to be down there for YOW, but we're like probably going to be like ships in the night or, I don't know, airplanes in the night or something. Not necessarily intersecting each other. Um, But there are a bunch of DevOps Days still coming up this year, strangely enough, Um, mostly in Europe with a little bit of Brazil and Australia in the mix and for the rest of 2016. And um, you can see those on DevOpsDays.org. There are a few CFPs open for next year already um, for on DevOpsDays.org. And a couple of other conferences. Um ChefConf 2017, the CFP is open till January 18th. And Velocity San Jose. Velocity Santa Clara is actually in San Jose now. So California Velocity. Uh for next summer, the CFP is going to close January 10th. So is the Monitorama CFP open yet? Good question. I think it is. Let's uh let's take a quick look. Monitorama is of course delightful. And anyone who has never been there um, Definitely wants to go to Portland because it's great. So let's see when that CFP closes. It will be opening soon is what it says. So yes, we'll put a link to monitorama.com in here as well. Are you going to be in Monodorama this year? Are you thinking? Mm,
0: That's like the thing on my list that I was going to submit a talk to.
1: (laughs) Nice. I don't know. I'm so torn. Like The problem with submitting to CFPs for me is... Because um, I do tech advocacy for work, I also have a lot of work travel that I'm definitely going to have popping up out of nowhere as time goes by. And so I kind of like to have the conference stuff pretty well plotted out, but with the eventual consistency of CFPs ends up making that sort of problematic. (laughs) It's like, I might be busy at this time, I'm going to wait a month or two to find out. That part ends up being kind of hard when you're doing a job that already has a lot of travel. (laughs) So yeah. But that said, like, obviously CFPs are a really, really good way to get in particular, I think they're a really good way to get speakers who um, may not have spoken at something before or, and that, I mean, there's, we could, we could do another, we are way over time here. So we're not going to get into that, but you, yeah, we could do an entirely other um, discussion about how, if you put your CFP out there and then you wait And then you close your eyes and shake up all the entries and pull. And then you're surprised if you find a white guy who works for a vendor, like, okay, what did you put into the CFP? Like you're you're only gonna have the pool to select from of the people that got, you know, notified about and felt like they could submit to it. (laughs) So yeah. But I think that that's one reason we try to talk about CFPs on here, just so that like a wider variety of people who maybe haven't submitted to a conference talk before.
0: Um, yeah and like encouragement is really like the first time the first conference i gave a talk at was PyCon canada and mm-hmm. i think like the the guy who runs montreal python emailed me and he was like julia you should submit a talk to PyCon canada and i was like oh i don't know someone already talked about this topic before i couldn't possibly and he was like that doesn't matter uh, and i was like oh I guess I'll submit a talk. then, And then I did. And then I gave the talk and everyone loved it. And it was amazing. And I was like, Oh,
1: (laughs) well, and I would suspect that your talk that you gave with your set of experiences and, you know, probably your awesome drawings and everything else is like a different talk than the other person's, which was probably a great talk, but it was a a different different
0: talk talk than the other person's, which was a great talk.
1: (laughs) They were both great talks. (laughs)
0: It turns out
1: but there can be more than one great talk ever. Well, yeah. Um, so if people have a CFP coming up that they would like promoted on Arrested DevOps, uh, we have a form at Arrested DevOps.com slash conf C O N F that you can tell us and we will read about your CFP and your upcoming conference on air. Uh, you can head to Arrested DevOps.com slash discovery for this episode's show notes. And the site also has our newsletter, merchandise, Patreon. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce that. So I'm not sure. Um, But all the Arrested DevOps stuff you could ever want. And you can visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store if you want to help other people find the podcast. So thank you so much, Julia, for being on the podcast. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted that I got to come talk to you this is so great this is this is literally like the first time julia and i have ever talked That's not on twitter so it's like hooray um that means we we have to hang out at a conference sometime in 2017 fact true fact all right so i'm bridget at bridget Crumhout. we're arrested devops and remember there's always devops in the banana stand